Paz IM Radio with your co-hosts Robert Brining and Aaron Laxton. We go around the world and across the United States. Join in the conversation by calling in to 929-477-3572. That's 929-477-3572. This week, we have your HIV scoop with Josh Robbins and your positive message from Rise Up to HIV and Kevin Maloney. Your weekly dose of hope. Pause IM Radio. I hope you're ready for season two because it starts now. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Pazine Radio. It is August 20th. This is Robert Brining coming to you live from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, it is an awesome, beautiful day here, 85 degrees. It's beautiful. Uh, if I could, I'd be outside doing something, but I am here for you today to offer you your weekly dose of hope here at Pazine Radio. You know, every week we sit down and and we hear a story from somebody living with the disease who is uh, offering hope to others. Um, Some of these people you may have uh, seen on TV before or in magazines, and then, you know, others you may not have seen or met ever before. So it is incredibly um, inspiring for me to sit in this chair every week and hear a story from an individual who has um, changed the lives of those living with HIV and AIDS. And believe it or not, we have actually... Uh, come October, so about a month and a half, uh, will mark one year back on the air. And I can't believe that it's already been a year. And like I said earlier, it's an honor to sit here uh, every week with you and, and to bring you your dose of hope, bring you uh, some inspiration, uh, bring you um, some news, what's going on. You know, um, I want to also thank uh, uh, Josh Robbins for offering uh, this week's HIV scoop like he does every week for us. Um, it is uh, a new edition that we added this year when we came back on the airwaves, and it's been a hit. Uh, I know he just told me he enjoyed doing it. I enjoy having him doing it, so we hope that continues further for the next season coming up. Um, so with that being said, we are at the point where we are fundraising uh, to keep the show going. So if you are interested in uh, – uh, helping the show by making a contribution or donation to, for us to uh, stay up and running for another year, please go to any of our social media platforms uh, at Pazim Radio. There's links there where you can make a donation. Um, we're only trying to raise $800, just enough to keep us going um, and to pay for, you know, the, the services that we use. And uh, that's it. So, um, yeah, if you're interested, check that out, or you can go to GoFundMe and, and Google or search on there, Pause IM Radio. I'm sure it will come up for my name, uh, Robert Brining. Uh, we've already raised $70, so I want to thank um, Stephen and Ray, uh, two friends of mine who has contributed to that. Uh, thank you so much for making the first uh, set of donations and getting the ball rolling on Pause IM Radio, coming back for another season. And it's going to be a great season coming up. I know it. Um, I just updated the website. So if you haven't been to our website, uh, check that out, uh, .com. Uh Some new information on there. Uh, if you haven't already, um, check out the WeGo Health Awards. Um, 
myself and the show has been nominated for two categories. We would appreciate it if you would go there and endorse us and show some love um, uh, to the show because uh, we definitely uh, uh, would like to, to, to see where that goes. Um, so uh, last week, uh, I sat down with two amazing people, Butch McKay and Kathy Robinson Pickett, if you missed last week's interview, and they spoke about the conference that's coming up in September. I'll be attending that. Hopefully, uh, most of you will be, or if you haven't already, I would uh, check it out. It's called uh, Positive Living. Uh, this year is its 20th year anniversary, and Butch came on and shared uh, the history and how it was started, and now to it being its 20th year in existence helping people i mean it's an incredible conference up to uh i want to say i think there's like 400 500 people that go to this conference and 95 percent of the people there are positive it is a conference for positive people you go to this conference and you leave um rejuvenated energized you leave uh ready to kickstart your activism again um and it's just an incredible incredible conference so i recommend that you check it out uh, ageoasis.org is the uh, website, and the conference, again, is Positive Living 20. Check it out. I'll be there. I'm going to be uh, doing some Facebook Live interviews um, that week while that weekend while I'm there because um, I'll be flying home on Sunday, the 17th, so there won't be a show on that day because I'll be traveling. So, But when the time does come um, throughout the conference, I plan on pulling out my phone and doing some some live interviews with people and introducing introducing you to some amazing, inspiring individuals that are making a difference on those living with HIV and AIDS. And there's so many of them down there. It's incredible. It's really an incredible, incredible conference. Again, Positive Living 20. So today's guest, I see him sitting on the line. Um, my brother, my friend, Juan Wolf. I hope I am saying your last name correctly. Um, this gentleman I met at the Brotherhood Retreat that I recently went to is the Poconos in July. Um, and Juan was one of those people who, as soon as you met, you felt you had to just give a hug. Uh, you could feel his energy. He was somebody who just was just this great ball of happiness. Um, and when you felt him, when you gave him a hug and when you were around him, you just felt, you just felt love. I, I can't explain it. Um, uh, maybe he can explain a little bit better of how he is able to throw that energy out at people. I know I'm not the only one who experienced it. Um, we'll be taking calls throughout the show. So if you're listening and want to call in and uh, give some input on uh, your experience with Juan, 929 uh, So please help me welcome today's guest, Juan Wolf. Is that correct, Juan? Did I say it right? Yep, that's right. Juan Wolf. Thank you. How are you today, sir? Beautiful intro. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm in uh, at my house uh, in Boulder, my apartment in Boulder, Colorado. And, um, yeah, I just found out last Monday that I have one more round of chemo for for this uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that I'm going through right now. And actually, when we met, I was in between chemos. I kind of like scheduled it right. so that I could come and facilitate the retreat. But um, I'm feeling really good because I, I also got to take one extra week off from treatment. Um, so it's good. Good. Life is good. It's beautiful. It's sunny. I'm excited about the eclipse tomorrow. And I'm, I'm really excited about this time with you. Um, I do. I do. I've had some. I don't. 
for years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. have any glasses, so I'll be watching it through the TV. <laughs> yeah, and I'm I'm gonna drive. I'm thinking about driving up to Shoshone in in Wyoming. It's about five or six hours away, and uh, and then wow. I'll be in the in the shadow of the oh, eclipse. That's cool. Yeah. Oh, that's so very I'm cool. excited about all of that. Yeah. Uh, so I really don't know. I've never done a radio interview like this before. And uh, no, that's I, fine. I, you know, welcome your guidance around it. No, no, you're totally fine. So, so from what I have in your bio, that you were born in Venezuela, um, and you were yeah. diagnosed HIV positive uh, June 24th in '86 when you were 22 years old. So, where were you when you were diagnosed? Um, were you here in the United States? Were you in Venezuela? Like, where were you when that happened? And then tell us about how you found out. Well, I um, I had just gotten back to Venezuela just a couple of years earlier, and I don't I don't know if I contracted it here before I went back, or if I was during my time there. Um, when I was diagnosed, they thought that I had it for a year or two, so it could have been on either place. Um, right. I actually, um, I was in Caracas, and it was in the summer, so I was in between semesters while I was studying architecture school in Caracas. And um, I had a boyfriend at the time. We had been dating probably for like a couple of months, two or three months. And um, everything was like very hidden at the time. And, you know... Being in, having been in Venezuela for two years, you just kind of like heard about HIV through like Time magazine publications and, and things like that. In some places, it was still called the gay cancer. And at the time that I was diagnosed in Venezuela, um, like if you got HIV, it was like truly like a a punishment from God. Um, your family would disown you. Um, people would get sick in the hospitals. Nobody would visit them. Uh, and, and they would die in hospitals and the families wouldn't come and pick up the bodies. The, the county either donated it to the university for medical school or, or, or they just had like cremations and got rid of them somehow. I really don't know exactly how that was, but I remember the environment. And at the same time, you've heard on the international news the big debate happening here in the United States, because that was still the time when Reagan was refusing to uh, put in any money into research. So um, what happened that summer was I started losing my hair and, uh, and my eyebrows and in my head. So actually, I went with my mom and my dad to the doctor somehow. Back then, it just seemed normal that a 22-year-old will go to the hospital with her parents, right? And um, I, um, he said, well, you know, it looks like it could be nervous. It also could be an, an STD. So why don't we do all of these tests and, and figure it out? And And in fact, at the time... I also, I didn't know that I had uh, syphilis. 
And um, that's what was making my hair fall out called alopecia nervosa. And he gave me, you know, the treatment for syphilis and everything else. But at the same time was when the test for HIV had just come out, like earlier that year. And I asked him if he would do the test. When I went to pick up the results, um, Ramon came with me. And, uh, you know, we I drove, we went together, we're, we were with the doctor, and, and he said, you know, that it had come back positive. And in that very moment, I it was just such a shock that I almost had no reaction to it. I, I don't think that I could even cry or anything. It was it was like frozen. Like I became like frozen for a moment. And then I had a small conversation with the doctor about what to do next and he advised things and then he and I left and he was quiet all the way down to the car. And I was just trying to process this information and as soon as we got to the car he just looked at me and said, Please drive me home and I drove him to his house and I was I can't remember if I talked about it on the way. I was trying to just figure out what was happening and when I got to his house he opened the door got out of the car and he said to me, don't ever call me again. And he shut the door and he left. And that was the last time I saw him. And your doctor? No, my boyfriend. Oh, your boyfriend. Okay. We I, somehow I, I must have. Yeah, we were in my car. Okay. I drove him home and he got out of the car and he said, don't call me anymore. And he shut the door and he walked into his house. And to wow. this day, it's been 31 years. I, I have no idea what happened to him. Because six months later, I left Venezuela, and I and I have not been back. Um, I mean, I went back for a little bit, for a couple of weeks in '93 for my sister's wedding, but that was it. Um, and I just kind of like went on building a life here in the United States, and and for many years it was, yeah. Ask me. And I was going to ask you when you went back to the United States, where did you go? Well, um, before I went to Venezuela, I was already here. After high school, I went to New Hampshire. I learned English. And that's when I had Hodgkin's. I was 18 then. So I went to Houston and was treated. And when I came back for my checkup in Houston at the MD Anderson, I kept going to California because my brother lived in Southern California. So I went to Orange Coast College for uh, three years or two and a half years. It was about five semesters. And um, that was the economy in Venezuela was really bad, but that's when I went back to Venezuela from 1984 to 1987. Um, I was diagnosed in June of 86 and I came to the States in February of 87. So, I came back to California. I went to back to, because I came back as a student. So I went back to my school, Orange Coast College. And at the time I had HIV, I was a full-time student and I was paying for my own school because my dad with the economic situation in Venezuela, he couldn't help me with the school. Now, now let me me ask you this one. 
Well, let yeah. me ask you this real quick. Did you, did you, so after you found out you were positive in Venezuela, did you tell any of your family there or was it something that was kind of kept? Well, actually, it's, well, <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'll go over that. So <laughs> my sister. No, I'm just curious was, to see how they reacted. Yeah. yeah. Well, I didn't tell, I didn't want to tell anybody. I couldn't tell my mother because just, you know, a few years earlier, she spent a year with me in Houston dealing with cancer and Hodgkin's. And I just didn't have it in me to tell her. My sister worked at the hospital where I had been evaluated. And Mm -hmm. she came to work one morning and in the laboratory, there was this huge wall and there were all of these names. And all of a sudden, my name was posted there as a patient of high risk. So she went to my doctor and asked him about it. And he really couldn't tell her because of confidentiality. But he went down to the laboratory and he tore all those names down and told him, you can't do this. This is, this is the patient's confidential information. You, you know, you just can't do this. So she found out and... Um, one of my other sisters was rummaging through my room and she found out the the uh, results of the test. So two of them found out first. I think they told my mom. And I think that I was a little bit set up by them because all of a sudden <laughs> the movie and early frost showed up in our house. And I put it on the VHS because back then we had VHS. Um, I remember them. And <laughs> Uh, Yeah, yeah, that was like the first film that came out, and I watched it, and after the film, I just, I couldn't stop crying, and my mother was there, and she kept asking me, what's going on, what's going on, why are you crying so much, why is this movie hitting you so much, what's happening, all in Spanish, of course, and then I told her, right, and um, we went for a walk, and we had a really deep conversation about all of this. But the situation in in my house, I mean, I had to rush to get back to the States because Reagan was about to close the borders for people with HIV. And that's when the HIV law that no one can immigrate was put on the books, but the same law didn't apply for tourists or students. So I came back as a student as fast as I could. Um, But during those eight months that I was, in our house and not like my family did anything wrong. You, you have to go back to the mentality and the fear that was then. Um, right. You know, I had my own set of silverware, my own set of dishes. Um, at the time, you know, there was a bathroom in my bedroom. I could, that was the only bathroom that I could use. I didn't sit at the table when my nephews were there cause my sister was paranoid that, you know, eating at the same table that they could get it. Uh, They were talking a lot of talk about bleaching things at the time. It was really, really early on on the epidemic. And there were a lot of religious um, notes about how to handle this because the main population was gay and most people saw it as as a blessing from the heavens. Oh, this is how we're going to get rid of the gays. And it wasn't right. until um, Ryan White died that really, you know, 
it's so sad that yeah. such a young child, he was five, and that if it wasn't for him, um, I don't know how much longer it would have taken, right, for us to wake up yeah. that this was just a disease or, or, or a, a virus. And, you know, in, in retrospect, I think that what's come out of the AIDS epidemic has been really good. The thing about the ribbons, the awareness that we have now about breast cancer and and, and you know, ep- epilepsy and, and whatever, Parkinson's, you name it. You know, there's yeah. a lot more awareness about that. And that was all birthed out of the AIDS epidemic. Right. Um, and so I, I came to the States and uh, pretty soon after I arrived in February of 87, by that summer, I was already taking ACT in the really high doses that we had there, which were, let me see, I think it was like 300 milligrams every four hours. Wow. Um, I was fortunate enough, yeah. Yeah, it was four pills every four hours. You have to have a watch with a timer on it. And um, but I feel fortunate that my system actually, if I missed a dose within 30 minutes to an hour, I would get a headache. So I had my own internal clock that was telling me that I needed to take it, whereas a lot of people couldn't even take them. It would make them so sick, you know, to take these medicines. So um, I I just want to say I also remember this article in Time magazine, and it was a woman that had HIV, and she she was sitting uh, on the steps of a beautiful building in New York, something like, you know, the courts or something, marble steps. And she has this beautiful vase next to her. And it was the urn that she had picked for herself. So this idea that you would live for 31 years with this, it, it, it was unfathomable then. You couldn't, it was, it really didn't seem like an option. Right. Um, so I, I went, I got back to Orange County, I, I registered in school and in 1990, I got my associate of arts degree with honors. And at the time I, that's when I moved to San Francisco searching for better therapies than what I have available in, you know, very Republican right wing Orange County. I just couldn't live there anymore. But, um, something that happened was also the choice that I made because at the time that I graduated in the late eighties, mostly I specifically remember a gay couple that had been together for over 20 years and they owned a Victorian in Seattle that was full with imagine everything that a gay couple collects over 20 years. But the guy that died was the one that legally owned it. And the family came kicked him out, wouldn't even let him get his clothes out of the house. He was evicted from his own home. And the family sold the house that was worth at the time probably a couple of hundred thousand dollars. They sold it for $45,000 with all the contents inside. Wow. Not even caring about anything. And at the time, I remember also, if you died from AIDS, uh, you are your debt liability could be used to go after your family. So 
So anyone wow. in your family that had money, they could come after you. There, there were no laws to protect against this, you know. And so I, I, I finished my school, and I had enough to go into any school for architecture that I wanted. And I thought about spending another three years, two or three years in another school, getting my architecture degree, being in debt for $70,000, which is how much a, a graduate school or a, you know, undergraduate degree would cost at the time. And I just saw them coming after like my brother and his wife and my nephews or, or, or my parents, whatever. And I decided not to do school anymore. So I just kind of like, little by little, I had to let go of everything that I thought was important in my life. And my life became, in Cali, in San Francisco, more about surviving and finding out therapies and how to stay alive and trying to enjoy whatever I could. You know, getting stoned was a big part of it. Yeah, but, um, well, I couldn't imagine. Yeah. I, I couldn't imagine what it was like in the early days being in San Francisco and and kind yeah. of like the heart of where you know it, it was happening. What was that like to be in that kind of environment? Well, it it was it was actually really powerful. First of all, I had been there for the first time ten years earlier in 1980. My brother got married in Southern California. My whole family flew out there and we drove. And I was, I remember walking on the streets of San Francisco and seeing men holding hands and everything. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to live here one day. And almost to the day, 10 years later, is when I moved. But I got there in, um, I think it was in September or October of 1990. And it was the year after the earthquake. So I went to a city that I was still kind of like recovering from the scars of um, um, freeways that had fallen down and things like that, and right. um, and and you know, property and rent was actually really inexpensive. But it was the town where I finally felt free, where there were all of these, where I could, for the first time, feel like I could be myself. And we're talking, I was at the time 24 years old, right. And I already had right. HIV for a couple of years. But what I did notice was that my generation was missing. When I would go out, and, and when the bars were real bars, you know, the, the, the bars that were created in the 70s and 80s were, were the AIDS epidemic kind of like came and ravaged after they created this kind of amazing environment for all of us. Um mm -hmm. And I remember going to like a bar and there'll be a lot of like, you know, 21 to, you know, young guys or really older guys that were 10 to 15 years older than me. But people my age, they were all missing. There were very few. They were all dead. Right. You know. And wow. uh, at the you know time, the the... The project, um, what is it called? The quilt. The name's very project. Much alive. The name's project. Thank you. I've forgotten the name of the name's project. It's not funny. <laughs> uh, and 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 that was 
you know, I, I started to get more and more involved on like gay pride and uh, and flagging, and um, I also saw a lot of the benefits. I benefited a lot from uh, the Ryan White Project and the AIDS Foundation and all of these organizations that were there to support all of us. That without them, we, you know, we wouldn't be here. And then, you know, no, that, that is true. That is true. Just real quick, I real quick, I got to take a break um, and yeah. uh, play uh, play this week's scoop. So uh, give us one, give us like a couple, two minutes. We'll be right back with Juan. Okay, Juan. Okay, great. Let's do that. Uh, I right, will be right. Back. We'll be right back. So here is this week's. Let me just find it in my thing. This week's uh, HIV scoop by Josh Robbins. This is your HIV Scoop with Josh Robbins, exclusive for Paws I Am Radio. Buzzworthy HIV news in under 90 seconds. Here's Josh Robbins in this week's HIV Scoop. Northwestern medicine scientists have developed a novel method of tracking HIV infection, allowing the behavior of individual infectious particles to be connected to infectivity. The findings could help lead to the development of novel therapies for HIV prevention and treatment by providing a deeper understanding of the mechanisms of HIV's life cycle. Now, this paper was published August the 7th in Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences. In the current study, the team of scientists used a novel live cell fluorescent imaging system that allowed them for the first time to identify particles associated with infection. Now, the finding is just one example of novel discoveries about HIV that might lead to possible imaging systems in the future. All right, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy alum Jay Rodriguez is speaking out about what HIV means to him. He's teaming up with Positively Fearless to educate the Latinx community about HIV and encourage gay and bisexual men to be fearless in taking charge of their health. To learn more the movement about the movement, visit PositivelyFearless.com. Finally, Strictly... Come Dancing, which is British television dance contest. So it's featuring contestants and celebrities and other people from all walks of life with professional dance partners competing in ballroom and Latin dance. Um, so it's similar to the show in the U.S., Dancing with the Stars. It's called Strictly Come Dancing. Anyway, they just announced a new contestant. The hopeful is Reverend Richard Coles. Now, this guy pretended that he had HIV for five years during the height of his fame in an 80s pop duo. Weird, I know. So why would he do that? He said, quote, saying it got me sympathy, which I like. The harder part to admit was that there was a dark glamour to being HIV positive. There was this drama, and I was drawn to that, end quote. Huh, interesting. Five years later, when Richard turned to God, he finally plucked the, up the courage to admit his shocking lie. Well, isn't that just lovely? Just lovely. I hope this guy gets booted from the show on day one, because I won't even care. Wow. Just wow. <laughs> I'm Josh Robbins, and this was your HIV Scoop. Thank you, Josh Robbins, for more information on the HIV Scoop and Josh Robbins himself. Go to I'mStillJosh.com. One of the things um, I want to do, I'll, Juan, you're back with us here. Uh, one of the things I wanted to 
to ask you about, Juan, is since you are from Venezuela and Venezuela has been making the headlines, you know, and HIV has been making the headlines. Um, our friend uh, Rise Up to HIV and Kevin Maloney posted something today that I wanted to kind of get your feedback on. Um, and what it says is attention, donations, and ARVs are desperately needed. People living with HIV in Venezuela are suffering and dying like the earliest days of the epidemic. It is the worst humanitarian crisis in, in decades, and we have to, a responsibility and opportunity to help. We're calling on people living with HIV to act now by donating or dropping off your unused or expired ARVs, especially a AAA, today. So if you go to our uh, if you go to aidforaids.org, there's a recycling drive, and it tells you where exactly you can drop it off and stuff like that. But do you have any um, information on that one, or, or what are your thoughts on, on what's going on there? Uh, well, I, I don't have information specifically about people with HIV. I would imagine they're the ones that are suffering the most, along with other very sick people, people with cancer and things like that, because there is no medications for anybody or food. Um, my brother, who still, my oldest brother still lives there. The rest of my family, immediate family is here in the States. But my oldest brother, who's in Valencia, he only gets like one shopping day a week and they have to get, like go hunting to see which market or where they can find food. Um, we wow. have been sending him boxes of food and supplies my sisters have from, from Florida, but now the company that was getting that accomplished can no longer serve because the situation is just so dangerous. So um, wow. the, the packages, really, they, they're not even delivering anymore for a while. So I, it, it's pretty dire. And what makes it even worse is that most of the militia or the military that aligned with Maduro, they're really not even born in Venezuela. They're guerrillas from uh, Guyana and Cuban militia and Middle Eastern militia that him and Chavez over the years have brought to Venezuela, giving them citizenship so that they would vote for them. And then they put them in the military. That's why they kill so many young Venezuelans on the streets, not even caring about anything, because they're not Venezuelans. Um, wow. So it, it, it really is an impossible situation. But I, um, I, I think that this is the way that change happens. And like here in, 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 in our own country, I'm, I'm always hoping for uh, the best outcome and, and trying to just navigate this from a higher perspective, which in a way I, I don't want to share in here right now because it can be controversial. Right. The way <laughs> so so, so but, speaking um, about change and, and positivity, I want to talk about the retreat because you're one of the facilitators at the retreat um, with class yeah. and, and the, 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 the Brotherhood retreat, and that's where I met you in July. So I want to kind of talk about that. How did you get involved in um, – how did you, you meet up with class and get involved in the retreat? Well, um, that's interesting because it's exactly where the segue where I was going. It really <laughs> the positive aspects, how, how having had this experience in my life has um, benefited my life in many ways. Um, so something happened while I was still living in San Francisco 
I was probably about 10 years into HIV, so it was probably in, in the mid-90s, 94, 95. And I was living in San Francisco in what's called the tender knob on posts between Larkin and, and Hyde, which is, it can be an iffy type of neighborhood, but I had a wonderful apartment. I love that place. And then mm. um, next, the building next door, there was somebody moving in and they were taking in this really nice couch and they couldn't get it in the door. So I, I helped them put it in and, you know, I helped them just move in, this stranger. And, and then we were sitting on, on, on the steps in front of the building. And I, I asked them, so, so where are you from? You know, you, you have really nice things. How come you're moving here? And, and he said, well, I was just diagnosed with HIV last month. So I quit my job, cashed in my disability, and, and sold my house, sold my apartment, and decided to just move in here so I could die. And I was, I was like, torn, like between laughter and like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, it's like, you just got diagnosed and you're giving up your entire life in 30 days? Just totally out of fear. And I told him, I said, I, I've had this for 10 years and I'm going to fight it every day. You know, I'm, I'm going to live every day like it's my last day. And I don't know exactly what happened with him, but I think I, I remember at the moment, like it, it kind of touched him and it inspired him in some way. But from that point on, I, all those things began to happen. So I also had chicken pox when I was 30 and I had an incredible out-of-body experience in the hospital then like an astral type of travel and when i came back to my body the one thing that i knew is that the judgments that i had about myself about being gay or having hiv or that it was some punishment from this life or past life or the choices that i made that that was all bullshit that was created exactly how i needed to be and that i was exactly in the place that i needed to be and from that point forward I just started really, instead of being a person living with HIV and struggling to survive, I started to become more and more someone who was thriving. Um, and I was like 30 at the time. I'm 53 now. So in the around, I want to say around 2000, 2001, it was 2000. It was right before 9-11. I, I did my first spiritual retreat. And then what I started to do was I went to the men's inner journey, Michael Sigmund, amazing facilitator. And then I became an inner journey facilitator. So then I learned breath work with Christian de la Huerta and I became a breath work facilitator. And I was working for um, um, uh, Jay, Dr. Jay Lazari who was an investigational doctor who in, in the, during the AIDS epidemic, he was a doctor at Mount Zion and his patients were dying right and left. And there were like these medicines like ACT, they started to come out, but he couldn't give it to his patients. So he left his practice and became an investigational doctor because that was the only way that he could get medicines to his friends that were dying. And then I started working for him because I became a study patient for several of his studies. And um, so that's where I learned how 
pharmaceutical companies work, how the FDA process works, how insurance companies work. And then after working for him for four years, I had an epiphany that I needed to leave. And I went to see uh, someone who was giving me massages at the time. And that was the last time I was going to see him. Um, um, Drake Carter from Bear Relief Therapies. And he said, well, I have too many paid clients. Why don't I train you to do body work? And that's how I got started on massage. So then I got my massage certification. And then I became a transformational body worker with Fred Me Tower, where we work with the emotional body and how it's embedded into your cells. And it's about removing cellular memory from your body from past trauma. So all of these pieces have kind of like come together and what you experienced in the retreat, which was the breathwork facilitation, is one of the things that I do. Um, one of the main things that I do, but I get bored with things. I get to, I learn them, I learn how to do them really well, and then I have to like learn something else. So um, and explain to me, explain to me what the body work is, what the body work is again. Well, um, so. I first learned deep tissue, Swedish, and uh, a little bit of chiropractic massage through Drake and the school of massage that I went to. And then I wanted to advance my teaching. And what Fred does is first, there's sort of an oral interview. You kind of like meet the patient or the client, not a patient, the client, where they're at and see what's bubbling, what's ready to come up. And then you go on the table and uh, through a series of manipulations, you sort of like bring the body into a relaxed state in a very uh, quick and effective way. And then you begin the self-exploration. You begin to find where in the body. You bring the, 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 the experience. You bring the emotional piece. For example, in my case, um, I, I was raped when I was like eight, seven somewhere in there uh, by another man. And, and it, it was traumatic, uh, but we figured out where it was, which was around my belly and around uh, my uh, pelvic area. And after working with it, when Fred went and worked in that area of my body, it was like all of a sudden I was transported back to that day. But there was like a huge emotional release like 30 seconds. And then this story began to unfold in my mind and I could feel the release in my body. And what I was remembering about the day, it was after I was raped in a little hut where they used to grind bricks, turn them into dust for the tennis courts that were powder clay. Uh, and on the way back to where the pool was and towards the bathroom, because I went and I put, put them changed into my clothes. I was in my bathing suit. And then I walked home. And what I remember was the way that the grass fell on my feet as I was walking back. And the smell of the trees and what the sky looked like. And then later, I remember the walk home and everything that this, as an eight, as a 48 year old, which is when this happened, 
I was looking back at myself, at this young child, everything that I told myself about myself on the way home, all that shame and not telling anybody and that kind of thing. And that, in essence, is transformational body work. It's being able to go in there and release from your body the programmed, the encrypted memory that is actually physically stored into you from past mm. trauma. And that's the kind of work that I do now. Got you. So so we have about like 10 minutes left. Um, tell me quickly okay. how you uh, met up with class and, and how how the, the retreat, how you got involved with that because, and then I also want you to talk about the retreat and what you thought of this past one that you attended, that I was at. And what what I thought about the what that I attended? The, is it, uh, the, the, last, the last retreat in July that we both attended, I wanted to know what you thought about that oh, one. So um, I was still training, or I had just finished my training with Christian as a breathwork practitioner, and Christian and Klaus knew each other. And Klaus asked Christian if he could come and do breathwork for his retreat. And Christian wasn't able to because he was already uh, somewhere else or working somewhere else. And he asked me if I would do it. And at the time, um, you know, we were, Klaus was really struggling to keep the retreat going at the time. This was, I think, the fourth year. And, um, I came and we, at the time, I didn't get paid anything for it. You know, I mean, class would pay for my travel and I would get to be in the retreat. And, and I mean, every year he gave me at least a couple of hundred dollars for working with him through the weekend. And then um, as the years went by, you know, it kept growing and growing. And then this is the highest attendance we've had. Uh, we started with uh, 31 people. We ended up with 30. Uh, that is, you know, a full retreat. And and every year it has gotten more and more powerful. Like like we, we have gotten our own groove with this group. And we also have mixed the, the part about creating the mandalas and everybody sharing at the end. That's part of this retreat only. When I normally do breath work, we just breathe, and then at the end, whoever wants to share, shares. But I find that the sharing and the witnessing of the share is really where the most powerful healing happens for everybody in the group. Yeah, I agree. Um, so, so this was our sixth. It was 31, 30 people, actually, for the breath work. And um, I, it, was, it was an interesting thing because... I, I had just taken all my savings and a bonus that I got from work last year and spent it all this winter by spending the winter in the Poconos in a cabin uh, getting writing together. And I signed up for this writing publishing school. And um, so I did all of this for months. I come back to Colorado and I get diagnosed with uh, large B-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphoma which is a lymphoma that is very common amongst long-term survivors that have taken meds for a long time. So it's also linked to HIV. So all of a sudden, when I come back to start my body work practice and make money and get out of, you know, or, or create the life that I wanted to, this happened. 
And what's really interesting is that what's happening right now is creating a whole new thing for me because I am now um, documenting everything that is happening with this chemotherapy treatment. I'm trying to support other cancer patients by posting videos on how to navigate chemo and the challenges of it and how you can, how do you move through it. But also, I am, we're creating a documentary that is geared towards taking money out of the healthcare establishment because as long as there is money involved, we, the patients, take a back seat. So it's giving me like a whole new purpose. And and I do want oh, to say awesome. that, yeah, yeah I, I do want to say one thing. Yes, I don't recommend HIV for anyone. This is my own personal experience, that it changed my life in amazing ways, that who I am today is nothing that I ever thought I would be when I was young, trying to ch chart my life out. And that even though they all have been incredibly difficult life-altering experiences with being sick, uh, they all have also been the teachers that have formed who I am today. Hmm. That is very, very true. You know, that's one of the things that I say I wouldn't change my diagnosis. I consider it kind of a gift. It, it's molded me into who I am and made me really put things into in my life in perspective of what's important and what's not. And, you know, I think yeah. being diagnosed and having that thought that, hey, I'm not going to be here forever. I'm not invincible. I'm not Superman. You know, having that realization, it kind of it kind of changed me into who I am. And I think who I am today is a lot better than who I was before I was diagnosed. <laughs> Absolutely. I was a hot mess. <laughs> And post-IM radio wouldn't exist. Mm. These radio stations, true. this moment that is touching so many that are listening right now wouldn't exist if you hadn't been guided mm. towards it through your experience with HIV. That's right. That is so true. So, you know, Juan, are you going to be attending at the, the uh, retreat in November? Yes. Yes. Well, that's kind of like our retreat. <laughs> yeah. And I do that. So you're always there. Now it's just you're there. <laughs> and it, 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 it's both of us. And, and, you know, he's just such an amazing uh, person in general, human being. You know, he gets the whole retreat together and everything. And, and, and he's just amazing. I, I love that man. No, I, I agree. I um, all of our participants, you know. I'm sorry? As I love all of our participants. Yeah, no, it's a great bunch of guys, and it was nice to go somewhere and not feel like a piece of meat or not feel like somebody's looking at you in a, in a, a sexual way. You know, because in the gay community, yeah. it's hard to find a space where you're not being objectified or, you know, that isn't crossing someone's mind. And to be at that retreat and to feel... Uh, like like what it, a sense of brotherhood, a family, people that were there and to get to know me, to know who Robert is, not to you know what I mean. To I don't know, it was just a different kind of gathering of with HIV positive people that I have ever experienced, and I'm hoping that in November that me and my partner, because I came home and told my partner about it, and he was like, oh, I would really like to go. 
So we're hoping that maybe we can get some funds to go to that because it'll be good. But if not, there's always next year. So there's always going to be another one. But I definitely would like to come because I know this is a smaller number uh, in uh, November. I think it's only 18 people. Yeah, it's only 18 because that's how many we can fit in the the house that we have at the retreat center. The retreat center is full for that weekend. But um, I, I, I wanted to say that that's kind of like the main thing uh, about this, that it's about being real and doing some self-discovery. And what's brilliant about this is that, yes, you're focusing and figuring out why you're there and what you're working on. But what you find that out by that, which is being reflected from your small group or the rest of the participants, you know, creating a, a, a true bond because you don't, you don't have to pretend to be there. You don't have to pretend anything. You just get to really express yourself as you are, you know. That is true. So on our last question for you, somebody who is newly diagnosed comes up to you. Um, what would you say to them? If they were earlier diagnosed, well, the first no, newly they're they're newly diagnosed. Go ahead. Recently diagnosed. Well, the first thing that I would say to them is, do not get into a numbers game. What do I mean by that? Lab tests are a good guideline, but that's all they are. I lived for over 27 years with 180 T cells. And, and I went into the hospital with 104.8 temperature, having chicken pox, and I only had 67 T cells. The numbers say that I should have died in the hospital that, that, during those five days, and I didn't. So, yes, do your test, take your medicine, you know, live a healthy lifestyle, but don't get caught on a numbers game of how many T cells you have, you have or what kind of viral load you have. Go by how you feel every day. How you feel every day determines your quality of life and try to create the best quality of life that you can. That would be number one. Number two is something that I did from the very beginning and sometimes it was helpful when I got turned down. But you know, um, Sexual exploration in your 30s and 40s is very common, and I lived in San Francisco during that time. I never engage in sexual interaction with anyone without telling them about my HIV status. And those few who turned me down when they found out about it, that's, what, that's for whom I did it. Because I feel like it's my responsibility if, 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 if AIDS, came into my life for some reason, then it stops with me. Meaning I have to share it with anyone that I'm gonna get intimate with. Um, and it also keeps my consciousness clear, you know. Right. It, it, it also makes me feel good that I didn't uh, trick something, you know. Um, and beyond that, you know, follow your joy. Life is precious. Yes. Follow your bliss. That is you true. Know? Put on the B-52 song and dance to it until the morning comes. You know, <laughs> they have a song called Follow Your Bliss. Well, there, fabulous there you have it. There you have it right from, uh, right from Juan. Follow Your Bliss. Juan, thank you so much for joining us this hour. It's been a pleasure sitting with you and chatting and hearing your story from beginning to now. I look forward to seeing you at the thank retreat you. in November. And um, yeah. people can find you online just by uh, social media. 
Yes, yes, absolutely. You can you can start with Facebook if you like. I mean, um, uh, they can contact you, and and if you feel called, yeah. to, you can definitely share my contact info with whoever wants to talk. And and I wanted to say, I thought we were going to have a little bit of a Q and A. I guess we don't have time. I apologize. Send me your questions directly, and 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 we can chat that way. There you have it. Juan Wolf, thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you have a great day. You too, my friend. Thank you, and happy eclipse, everyone. Yes, yes. Much love to you, Juan. Thank you so much. And again, you can find more information on Juan uh, by going to our social media um, on Facebook. There's links there. And then more information on the retreat that we were talking about, go to positretreat.com or go to our social media, and you'll be able to find it all there. I do want to play one positive message from Rise Up to HIV, so let me get that in before we go. Hi. My name is Bob, and I'm from Walkworth, Ontario, a little uh, rural community of uh, 700 people. So I'm a, a rural POS guy. And I've been POS for 23 years now. And um, so I'm a long-term survivor, and I'm kind of proud of that. And I'm proud of all long-time survivors out there. So hi, long-term survivors. want to want to lift my hat to you. Uh, but I also want to lift my hat to, to people who've joined us along the way, uh, and offer encouragement and support and love because um, I think you have real opportunities here as a person living with HIV to live the kind of life that you wanted, always wanted to do, um, to make a difference, uh, to throw off the shame, uh, to realize what you want to do, uh, and, and if you want, to help and encourage others, just as uh, Kevin is asking us to film videos to to support others, um, you have that kind of opportunity too. So Kevin's onto a good idea. Um, I think what I like about this is that it emphasizes that we are part of a community. We are here for each other. We're here to support each other and to learn from each other. And I kind of like that. Um, it's an opportunity uh, that comes with HIV, and I, I've grabbed it, and, and, and I hope you will too. So enjoy. Um, being part of a community that can offer you so much and which has the opportunity for you to offer so much. Um, be well. Enjoy your life. Enjoy the HIV community. It's quite wonderful. And there you have it. Thank you all for joining us this week on Pause and Radio. When we sit down with Priscilla, uh, she'll be sharing her story of what it's like to be a trans woman living with HIV. I want to send a special thank you out to Josh Robbins for sharing his uh, HIV scoop with us this week. And I also want to send a special shout out to Kevin Maloney for his Rise Up to HIV campaign. And a big loving hug to our guest, Juan Wolf. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you have a great day. Thank you for joining us for Paz I Am. You can listen.